Welcome to the Unexpected Leader Podcast. You know, in the past, God chose to call fishermen and tax collectors to join him on his mission. Today, he still calls the broken. They may be sons and daughters of mechanics or of business women and men. You may be one of them in a position of lay or vocational leadership in a church or a mission agency, maybe an educational institution or denominational leadership. But if you, like me, find yourself unexpectedly in leadership, then this podcast is for you. Thanks for taking the time to listen in. We want to welcome you to the uh, sixth episode of The Unexpected Leader. I'm joined today with uh, Ron Scott, who's filling in for Lois Mitchell, our regular co-host. Ron, thanks for joining in on this one. Thank you. And Ron and I are joined uh, with the Reverend Dr. Anna Robbins. Anna, it's great to have you with us. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for the invitation to chat. So, Anna, as we get started, uh, why don't you just kind of give us a, a thumbnail sketch of where you're involved in ministry these days and the role that God's called you to? Sure. I'm known because of the role, I guess, um, in this context, which is uh, I'm serving as president of Acadia Divinity College. Um, I've been at the Divinity College for seven years, but people are excited, I guess, because I'm not only the first woman president of our college, but of any Baptist college in Canada. So that's kind of exciting. But I've only ever seen those roles as ministry, and so it is definitely my ministry calling to be there, which limits my other ministry services, but they, they do happen in, in different leadership uh, quarters. I'm really excited because uh, for those who may be listening, Anna and I have been friends for a really long time. She now leads the seminary that we were uh, fortunate to be students together with. Take us back to when you were finishing up high school, grade 11, grade 12. Uh, I know that you're from St. John, New Brunswick. Mm -hmm. And um, in those last couple of years of high school, what were you preparing for or thinking about? And was ministry one of those priorities that you had to, to think about and were thinking about training? Yeah, it's really interesting to be drawn that far back. It's a long time ago now. Uh, but it's interesting because I would say ministry was not anywhere on my horizon or radar. I had uh, grown up in the church in St. John, not by a church family, but we were outreach kids from the neighborhood and we got invited um, to go to Sunday school when I was little and we, we got in. And so we grew up in that context, my sister and I, and later my brother, a little bit less than we did. But for me, it really bit, you know what I mean? I was in, I was all in. And so the church was a huge part of my life growing up, uh, even right into high school. Although I'm thinking about high school times, probably that's when I, I didn't struggle, but it, it didn't grab me maybe as much. I think I was having a hard time maybe figuring out how it fit um, the things that I wanted to do. And so I was, look, I was involved in debating in high school and I uh, was debating at national. So that occupied a lot of my time. I liked public speaking. I had been affirmed in church and in, in teaching and leading and all of those things. But I went to a church that at that time uh, would never have said to a, a woman, you know, we'd love you to consider ministry. They did sometimes say to me I should consider mission because, you know, I could go do it over there, just don't do it here. And that was part of my reality, so I didn't question it. So the latter years of high school, I was I was looking more towards a journalism degree. I planned to go to Carleton, and that's where I was putting my stock. I wanted to write, I wanted to talk to people, I wanted to travel the world and and find out interesting things and ask probing questions. 
So in the midst of that, what changed? When did that goal or dream morph into a realization that, you know, maybe God is calling me and that this is possible for me to engage at that level? Yeah, I think it happened. Well, it happened gradually. So I went to Carleton. I was only 16 when I left, right? St. John to go to Ottawa. And you, who, who, who knows who they are at 16? You think you know who you are, but when you look back, you really don't know who you are. So um, I was on that path of working out who I was, I think. And so I enjoyed my first year of studies. I wasn't very focused, I would say. In the journalism program, you have to be focused. It became, uh, my experience of it was that you had to be very aggressive with people, potentially sometimes at difficult times in their lives, and that didn't resonate well with me. Developed a much greater interest in politics and uh, and so switched my program over and, and finished in international relations. So the international picture was still there, interestingly. International relations and finished my degree. I would say at the same time though, over those years, God was speaking to me in some pretty dramatic ways. I was not overly involved in church. I kind of drifted into a church in Ottawa and out and then find another one drift in and out. Churches, in my experience, weren't great at connecting with the university crowd. And maybe I just didn't find the right one. But at the same time, God was just doing his work. And so I had some really neat encounters with God and the Holy Spirit who brought conviction and a real tangible presence to me that I'd probably not experienced before, even though we were very committed Christians to the Word and so grateful to my home church because I feel so rooted in the Word. We, we were taught very, very well. But the, the life in the Spirit became something that was... Um, happening to me without even seeking it, really. And and I knew then that I was ready to say to God, okay, what are you asking of me? And what does this look like? And it, it came gradually. So could you take us through what would be maybe some big course corrections, some moments after which you knew your world would never be the same? I don't know if it was, when I look back, it doesn't seem dramatic in my memory, and maybe it was at the time. In my memory, it's not very <laughs> exciting in some ways, it's because things happen so naturally. I think it was a big deal, though, one summer when I was pushing really hard for a job at the CBC in St. John, and they never would hire someone like me. I was a first or second year student. I couldn't speak French, I didn't, but I was, I was persistent and I would hassle them. And in the meanwhile, I got a job at the Red Cross. And so I was off to my summer job working at the Red Cross, uh, which became a pivotal experience for me. But a few days into that, I got a call from the station manager from the local CBC and he said, we've managed to scrape some funding together for you to come. And I was, this, this was a pivotal decision because if I went in that direction, it would have taken me on a very different path. And I had to thank him for the efforts he made, which were probably quite great. And I think he was a bit devastated with my response, which was, well, I've, I've found another job and it's full time and, and so I'm gonna carry on with that. And so the Red Cross became a really big part of my life. I was involved in the Red Cross in Ottawa. I was a volunteer at the national office in summers. Well, I worked, I even came back at the end of my degree to work permanently um, at the office in St. John in development um, education for the province of New Brunswick. And that encounter became very pivotal in terms of my call 
to ministry. When you think about then working in the Red Cross in St. John and then arriving at Acadia to start seminary studies, can you help us understand how that developed and how that took place? Yeah, it was huge. So I was working in development education, as I mentioned, and we had a camp for young people from across the Maritimes. These were key leaders, these kids. And they came together and we were leading them through talking about world problems and world issues. You know, this is a generation ago and yet what goes around comes around. But we, those were the kinds of things we did with them. And we reached a point where they had elaborated all the problems in the world and this group of bright, earnest young people concluded that the world would be better off if people had never entered into the picture at all. And I was a bit devastated by that. In, in terms of response, I reverted back to the Red Cross principles, one of which is humanity and talked about the value of humanity. But I went away from that weekend thinking, oh my word, people need so much more than that. And I'd become so immersed in issues of justice and looking after creation and how do we deal with conflict. And my faith had never really addressed those issues thoroughly for me. And so it became very much a part of my wrestling to say, well, God, do you have anything to say about these things? Because if you don't, I'm not sure how relevant you are to the life that we're living now. And that fed in very much to our actual day-to-day -day life, which was we became completely immersed in our local church, the church I had grown up in. I was uh, on the church council and I was the Sunday school superintendent back in the day, you know, when you had 200 kids in the Sunday school. and. It wasn't that long ago, really. Just being so much a part of things, we led the youth group and drive around the neighborhood, pick the kids up, because that's the kind of neighborhood it was, keep them for the evening, drive them back home again, sometimes keep them for a long time because there was nobody at home. So we did this almost constantly. So what was going on in my daytime life was, was in some ways subsequent to that. But these two things came together, and it seemed that God was saying, this is, this is the life I have for you guys. And we tested that out with the church, and they were very affirming and said they knew it was coming. They had hoped it wouldn't be so soon because we were doing a lot of stuff, but they knew that it was going to happen, and they were very encouraging. Your church saw it coming. Did you? Like, was that an unexpected moment for you when they kind of say, yeah, we had seen this coming? I was surprised that they had seen it coming, to be honest. I, I'm not now when I look back because I understand how the family works a little bit better. Um, but, uh, but I think I was surprised. I also recall that there were those who were helping us at that time to say, well, here's what you need to do. You need to go to Acadia. You need to prepare appropriately, and this is what you have to do. But at the same time as they were encouraging us, they were making clear that there was room for one minister in the family. And I, and I, hadn't, I had not experienced anything else in the church right? So w women led the Sunday school and they kind of did everything, but they didn't appear in the pulpit unless they were sharing or dusting it. Um, and <laughs> and but, so we all knew what women could do, but it, I didn't question it because um, that had been the reality I grew up with. And so I was fine with that. I said, that's fine. I just, I want to go and learn how to be helpful, Peter my husband, even though I was, you know, a leader at the Red Cross, even though I was doing all this leadership stuff at church, it's all right, I'll go and I'll, I'll be helpful. And that was my attitude because I've always just, I just want to serve. I just want to serve. Yep. And I've never had anyone say, don't serve here, right? So yep. that was fine with me. But my perspective changed a bit at seminary. And they warned me. They said, you go there and they're going to change your perspective. You need to be, you know, be clear on your path and so on. So that was an interesting part of the journey.
Was there a time that that reality that you grew up in with regards to talking about the pulpit and, and that significant role within church, did that crack at some point for you? And could you walk us through that even just briefly? Yeah, so at, at, at Acadia, I had to figure out what I was there for. And so at first I was there to be helpful. It wasn't long though before I realized, because I said to God, I was a bit lazy in my undergrad. I'd always done very, very well at school. But when I got to my undergrad, I was like, I knew how to get through without doing very much. But when we went to seminary, I said, well, God, if I have the ability and this is your thing, I'm going to give it everything I've got and let's see what we can do. I've described it as a deal, but people say that's not a deal. That's just you committing, but probably so. And I ended up doing very, very well. It was my, it was my thing to be there, ministry, service theology, all of it. I was in my element. And people could see that. In particular, professors would say, Anna, you need to meet with the board standards. And, you need to do and, I, and I was really resistant of that because I said, that's not what I'm here for. And I had to begin to wrestle as the desire continued to increase in me. And I think it was the Holy Spirit at work. I had to figure out how it's possible that God could ask me, a woman, to do these things. And we had very patient professors. In particular, I think of Alison Trites, and I've mentioned him before, a New Testament professor. He's still Professor Emeritus um, at Acadia. And he had an open door, and I would walk in just, what do I do about this? You know, but it says X, Y, or Z. And he would say, he'd smile and nod and say, well, Anna, have you read? And he would suggest another passage. And he also taught so consistently through the New Testament, highlighting places where where Jesus affirmed the ministry of women and where even Paul affirmed the ministry of women in an interpretation I'd not been exposed to mm. before and yet was so faithful to the authority of Scripture and so this, this was a wrestling that I had to go through that allowed me at the end of it to be able to throw myself on God and say, okay, what do you want to do with me then? I'm, I'm, I'm yours. And then what happened? <laughs> it's been a crazy roller coaster ride. Well, we finished, Peter finished his MDiv. I'd done the MRE because I was a good, helpful wife at that point. And I love, I love the whole uh, educational program of the church anyway. I have zero regrets, but in those days, if, and, if you were trying to be helpful, that was the degree that you did. But um, I was so fascinated with theology, I kept going with that one. So I studied an MA in theology part-time while we had our first um, church in Clementsvale, the far end of the valley. And uh, in those days, all of the churches down in that region all had full-time ministries, sometimes a ministry and a half or two, um, and it's not the same now, of course. Um, but that was, that was, uh, <laughs> that was a time when we sometimes wondered, what on earth have we done? What happened around the circumstances of, of going overseas for a season? So we served in Clemensvale for three and a half years. It was a fascinating time. There were difficulties when we first arrived about my call and what role would I have, misunderstanding about the woman again. And again, we've, we were not the kinds of people to push ourselves anywhere and that we, we didn't realize there had been this misunderstanding. And we, we were there, you know, it's your first church and our boxes were in the living room of the manse and I looked at Peter and he looked at me and and we were crying I said do we unpack or do we go right it was that it was that serious and we said well 
we prayed and said, God's put us here, let's see what we can do. So those were years of incredible blessing in some ways. The, the church grew, there were baptisms. We had the first, I think from that region, the first mission team went to Guatemala from the church and the community was involved. So there were great, great, great things, but there were also really tough, tough things. And it became the training ground, I would say, for everything that happened afterwards. So I'm actually really grateful for those times. But after three and a half years, I was finished my MA by then and had to decide, were we going to stay sharing ministry um, and continue on that road or, or was God asking me to continue studying? And it became clear to us both and we were agreed that it was to continue studying. So we went to the UK, to Wales, and Peter pastored uh, in central Wa- in mid-, mid Wales and, and I studied in Aberystwyth. I won't ask you to spell it. But, but I studied in Avarice with, with um, Alan Sell, who was a, a Reformed theologian. And it was, uh, uh, again, an excellent setting for me, an excellent time, and a, and a theologically formative time. After three, four years, oh, well, three years in Wales, I landed a job in London. And so I would commute down for the fourth year while Peter finished up in Newtown. And then he had a church in Watford. None of this means anything to people who don't know England. But down near London, and I was uh, on the faculty of the London School of Theology for 12 years. When you finished your PhD studies and went to teach at the London School, was it a, a sense that this is what I'm designed for? There was a wrestling the whole way, I think. Um, I remember um, at different stages talking with Alan and kind of blaming him for bringing me there and yet having (laughs) no destiny. And it wasn't his fault, of course, and he would kind of patiently wait and say, yes, well, the pulpit needs smart people, which is absolutely true. So I was, again, completely prepared to say, well, what's this PhD for, God? Well, if it's to feed your people in the local congregation, I'm good with that. If it's something else, then you, you have to show me what that is. So I had no agenda. I never had an agenda. You know, some people come to, to, to ADC now and they'll say, and I'll say, what do you want to do? And they'll say, I want to do what you're doing or whatever. And I just laugh. <laughs> if you could see the windy path, <laughs> mm. it's not so easy or straightforward as that usually. It is for some people, but my path was not like that. So I was nearing the end. I went in and out in three years with my PhD. I couldn't hang around because I'm an extrovert, and that was just too much time in the library for me. And I know some people, it's their paradise, but that was enough for me. And uh, I saw this ad for a job in, um, an ad for a job in London at the, what was then the London Bible College, and it was in contemporary culture and theology. And I thought, does such a thing even exist? Like, what is that? Because I had said not long before, I said, Peter, do you know what would be a great job for me? It would be somewhere where I can talk about TV shows and theology. I would love that. And then we kind of laughed about that. But then this ad came. It was it was in a, a national publication. And I, and I looked at it, and I put it away, and I dug it out again. I looked at it, and I said... I think I could do this. And it takes a lot of guts, you know, if you're coming from St. John to apply for a job in London where you don't really know anybody and and it's a big deal. But I had a real sense that it had my name all over it. And so I applied and went down to London and, um, and, and left standing in Euston Station. I got the phone call that they were offering me the job. So I knew, I knew, but I didn't know until, until it was right there. Right. But once you were there, it was like, this is it. Yeah. This is who I am. Mm. Yeah. Mm. That winding path has finally made its way to the present day. Uh, <laughs> we're recording in early October and just a, a couple short months ago, 
um, you had an installation service as the, the newest president of Acadia Divinity College. So uh, with this winding path, it seems as though you have been very well prepared and uniquely so to speak into and, and even to survey the landscape in the formation of, of young and emerging leaders. And we hope those leaders would be listening to an episode like this and really looking at their own potential calling and their paths. When you look at that, what comes to mind? Well, first of all, I'd want to encourage them that there's no single path. You know, so if, if I think sometimes young people look at the call and it's like this big, heavy, what is the call to pastoral ministry? I think that's not me. And I've heard that even from colleagues back in the day, let alone today where it's emphasized even more so. I would just want to say it's not necessarily what you think and that there are different paths and that there are different ministries where different qualities and gifts and so on are required. And so I would say if you think God is stirring you to something but you look at it and think, oh, I couldn't, that's, that's not me. I would say th- think again, pray some more and, and think about whether or not God might be saying, well, okay, you may not like it, but I've got some things that I want you to do, and uh, and I want you to learn and and be willing to kind of throw yourself on his on his will and designs for your life, which is always risky because we live in an age where we want to control. We want to control what we do and where we go, and control the risks and the outcomes. And um, there's no control when you're following God's wild way. There just isn't. So Lois Mitchell is going to be extremely disappointed that she's not sitting at this table. So Lois, if you're listening, I'll apologize for that. But Anna, one of the questions that Lois loves to ask uh, on the podcast is around the conversations that you're having regularly with people. And I think about your role and your interest. So your role at ADC, but your interest in culture and the conversations that you like to have around how we as followers of Christ live our lives out in our current culture context. What conversations would you most frequently be having with people, and maybe students, and maybe people in your home church, or it may be people that you work with as colleagues at the university? But if you could identify one or two frequent conversation points, what would they be? If you're talking about with Christian people in the first instance, I'm not sure our conversations are always around the, the main concern <laughs> that they could be, which is, is the gospel being presented well in our culture? I am always researching what does it take to present the gospel well in the culture today, and so we do still have those conversations. <clears throat> I'm the one who does the research on it, so, so my questions are sometimes uh, in a, coming from a slightly different place, but some of the things that I see and, and have conversations about with, with students especially is the whole idea of a lack of hope and lack of meaning. The whole meaning meme is a big thing uh, at the moment, I would say. I focus a lot on Charles Taylor, the, the philosopher from McGill who wrote Secular Age, on his identification of the malaise, the cultural malaise, when we've lost a sense of transcendence. In other words, when we've lost a sense that there's anything other than the material in the world, what happens then? And I've identified a few things from conversations that I've had that I think are manifestations of a loss of transcendence, a loss of a sense of God, a loss of the sense of the capital O other. And it's things like losing ourselves in distraction because if you sit too quietly too long and there's nothing, that's devastating, right? 
there's a sense of world weariness where we're kind of, we have a collective survivor guilt, those of us who are living in a world of great benefit and ease, in a world where it's full of tragedy, and we witness this on our screens day to day, and it's, it's again, devastating. And we're not designed for that as human beings, but this is the world that we live in. If you have no sense of transcendence of God in your life, what do you do with any of that? I have no idea. And then the third thing, I think this is big and working itself out because it's been so grabbed hold of by the markets, and that's the whole idea of nostalgia, where everything was better before, everything is bad now. So for Christians, we circle the wagons against the world and kind of hang on to what we've got for whatever it costs. And then for non-Christians, it's a sense of, well, yeah, it was better before, it's terrible now, and we have no meaning or hope. And if we can connect with some of these things, and I think it's easy to connect with these things, but we have to uncircle the wagons and be willing to be in those spaces. You know, I hear a lot of Christians get quite defensive saying, we've been pushed out of this space and we've been pushed out of that space. And there might be times and places where that's true, but can I just say that I think we are our own worst enemy and we've pulled ourselves out of spaces. So we're on a secular university campus. It's an exciting place to be as a Christian. The ministry is everywhere around us. And I see a space and I say to students and I say to myself and I have colleagues who do the same. We say, let's just step in that space. And there's the opportunities are endless. People want to have the conversations. They have no, they've lost so much a sense of the transcendent when they connect with people who have connection with the transcendent. There's like a, it's like a magnet to them almost. Um, and we've had some amazing conversations with people. And, and to be in that setting for us as Christians is we don't find it, at least at the moment, intimidating at all. We find it a great privilege and an incredible mission. And I think that then gives hope to the church because if, if we can do that in that setting, we're just living out in microcosm what the real life is for most Christians, which is you're in church on Sunday, but your church is in a secular setting, right? So you get out of church and you gotta live it in the real world. And it's not difficult to have conversations with people. It truly isn't. We just have to stop being, sorry, I'm getting <laughs> preachy now. It's okay. But, but <laughs> we just, we, I think we just have to stop being pretentious and that we're know-it-alls and we've got all the answers and just stand there with people and say, I'm a beggar telling other people where to find bread. Yeah. You know, we're all just beggars who need that same thing and here it is. And, and we don't need to be poncy about it. We can just be real. Can we just be real about the reality that is Jesus who is with us in every situation, every day, and, and not be panicked about having to have the right language for that, to tell people that they're awful or whatever it is, but just to model the love of Jesus Christ wherever we are. And it's winsome. Jesus is winsome. The Holy Spirit is winsome. When I read through the New Testament and I read about Jesus engaging in the culture around him, he just looked for opportunities to step into. And we can adopt that mentality where we don't see the opportunities because we're so self-conscious or we're so self-protective. But when we begin to kind of, when we begin to see that there are opportunities around us, we then don't have to overcome the fear of being perfect or having the right words or, or getting it right all the time. But within our context today in you know Atlanta, Canada, it's that sense of being able to be honest and authentic and say, I don't always have the answer, but let me try to go and find that answer with you and build that relationship and discover with them or walk along with them. Yeah, I, I think we have to let go of the idea that Christianity is a set of answers. 
we're really just introducing people to a person. And and I think we put a lot of pressure on ourselves to think that, well, I've got to have my toolbox of answers. So if anybody asks me question A, I can answer B. And if anyone says C, I can say D. And we, we actually, there's so many complicated issues. We don't know what to think. The thinkers don't know what to think. So it's okay not to know what to think. But if you know Jesus, then you get somebody to introduce people to and say, well, I don't know all the answers to all this, but here's somebody who, who that I share this journey with that makes life much more joyful and meaningful and purposeful. Um, and, and again, I think that's a winsome invitation. So in your role, you mentioned you have this exciting opportunity to gather good research about what our what our landscape and in our current cultural moment in time, what we're experiencing. Uh, what's exciting about that, that that seems to be emerging that that gives you that sense of, of hope as we journey forward from from 2019 onwards? Well, I have less time to research now than I used to, of course, it's pretty minimal at the moment. Um, It's not from the research, I think, that I get hope. I think what the research helps me to do is to understand this cultural moment. That's really what I do with that. The hope comes from Jesus himself and from just the reality that he is there. He's just there. And... um, the God who is there. That's the hope and that's the joy. Um, It's not that we can, you know, manufacture up again some kind of answer to these issues and these questions and so on. But one thing that I do get inspired about is when I look at the whole faculty and their commitment to research and other things, when when it comes to, for example, biblical research, people say, well, isn't that a dry activity? Well, it's not because what they discover is that the scriptures are reliable. Dis- they help us to see new depths into the scriptures so that our journey is never stale and dry. We can go deeper and deeper with the Lord, the better we understand scripture, for example. There are others who do research on how to make preaching effective. And now that's exciting because people say, oh, preaching's dead, oh, preaching. Well, if you've seen Stuart Blythe, who's our preaching professor, preach, there's hope for preaching, right? So so the hope doesn't emerge necessarily from the research itself, but the people who are engaging it and the and the way that deepens our understanding of our own call as Christians. We all have a call of, as Christians to serve the Lord where, where he puts us. And the hope is in the fact that that understanding empowers our discipleship. I think that's how I would understand it. And one of the questions that we've been asking those on our podcast is to kind of take a moment. We reflected back kind of on the journey that for you started in and around at 16 when you left high school and and went to Carleton to start studying and that began to move things in great and wonderful ways. If you can go back to the 16-year-old self, is there some advice that you would give I, I don't know. I mean, I you see that question goes around sometimes, doesn't it? And and I find it difficult to answer because I became who I became because of who I was then and and all the people who poured into me along the way. And there are moments of angst. Every teenager has angst. I had a lot of angst in terms of, you know, whether it was crying out to the Lord or writing poems or making collages about the destruction in the world, you know, whatever it is. What would I say to that person? Well, she already knew because I'd been so well grounded in the scriptures from my church that even if things didn't seem clear to me all the time, I, I knew I had a foundation and a source of life that was that was in me. And part of who I was and continue to be is a person in search of the great adventure with God. 
So I, I don't think I'd say that much to her other than, you know, keep keep going. Maybe get up a little bit earlier for school. You know, I would love to have taken the whole school journey a lot more seriously, but I didn't. I didn't have to to get through. But if I had, imagine what I might have got out of it. But at the same time, I would have been a very different person. And so I'm grateful for the person that God made me mm-hmm. to be. And I, so I don't. I don't. I don't know that I have a lot to say to that person. Maybe you have better ideas for me. Anna, we want to thank you for sitting down with us and just sharing some of uh, some of your journey and how God's moved along the way and has brought you into the season that you're in right now leading our seminary I think for me it's awesome uh, to have you there and I'm excited about what God's going to do through you and the staff that he's assembled uh, it, it just is exciting I want to give you the opportunity though you're a podcaster as well and you have a podcast out of the McCray Center how can people find that podcast to go and listen well, it's everywhere you find your podcast, and it's called Raising the Conversation with the McRae Center. Uh, we've just started, so we've got, well, we started recording about six or eight months ago, but we just released the first one uh, a few weeks back. For listeners of Unexpected Leader, we want to encourage you to go and uh, take some time to listen to Raising the Conversation. In addition to the podcast, Anna, you've been on a bit of a listening tour uh, to be able to connect with our constituency of the Canadian Baptists of Atlantic Canada. Do you want to just take a moment to uh, refer to that and, and what your uh, ideas around that are? Yeah, I figured that as I was beginning in this new role, it would be really important to connect with the churches and the leaders and the lay leaders just to find out what they're thinking about the equipping of people for ministry leadership. Because we can have all kinds of ideas and we think sometimes that we know, maybe we do and maybe we don't. So I thought it'd be really worth um, uh, touching in with as many people as possible before I started drawing up strategic directions for for where we're going. Um, So we've been We've been to a number of associations. We've been to Annapolis Digby Association, Lunenburg, Queens, down in Yarmouth. Uh, We've met with the AUBA, and we're heading uh, this weekend to um, Moncton and uh, Prince Edward Island. And then later in November, we'll be in the 16th in St. John and Fredericton and the 17th in Woodstock. It's been fascinating. Really fascinating. And I'm so grateful for the people who have come out and shared their thoughts and ideas. Uh, We want to thank you for listening, and we look forward to uh, sharing in this again. So, Anna, thank you so much for joining. Thanks very much for having me. It's an absolute pleasure. Thanks for listening to the Unexpected Leader podcast from the Canadian Baptist of Atlantic Canada. We're a family of over 450 churches and organizations joined together with the mission of joining God in our neighborhoods. This is a podcast from our Center for Leadership Development, and we want to invite you to join the conversation by heading to Instagram, where our username is unexpectedleader. You might also be considering whether God is unexpectedly calling you as a leader. And if that is you, we invite you to head over to www.yourcalling.ca and check out the content we've created just for you. Again, that website address is www.yourcalling.ca. Today's episode is part of Season 1 of the Unexpected Leader Podcast. Please make sure to subscribe so you'll get new episodes as they're released.